welcome to episode 73 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Rob Kanaki, uh, who's the Senior Fellow for Cyber Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations, but really the zealot, it seems to me, of uh, cybersecurity. Uh, um, you worked, uh, you were co-author with uh, Dick Clark of his book on cyber war. Uh, uh, you've worked at DHS. You worked at uh, the White House National Security Council. Is there uh, anything else I've missed? You've got my entire short career in this field. Yeah, well, he, uh, he, he, he really is. Are you 30 yet? 36. 36. Okay. Well, I don't get shirty about it. Uh, I, I, should, I know David Adelman. <laughs> All right. <laughs> David, are you, if you're listening, uh, uh, you know, uh, that's Rob Kanaki, K-N-A-K-E. Uh, okay. And uh, by Jason Weinstein, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, now doing criminal and civil litigation here at Steptoe by, with Alan Cohn, formerly with DHS, uh, where he was the assistant secretary for uh, practically everything, uh, and second in charge at the DHS Office of Policy, now of counsel at Steptoe. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and holding down the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's jump into our uh, news roundup uh, with a uh, uh, story that I am... Uh, Disqualified from discussing on grounds of uh, raw incompetence and unfamiliarity, uh, but it turns out that uh, the FBI has another attribution problem in the hack of the century involving the St. Louis Cardinals and the Houston Houston Astros. Houston Astros. Uh, I, uh, so, uh, I, Alan, J- uh, Jason, uh, what's going on here, uh, uh, and why can't they attribute the uh, attack? Well, so this was the hack that we talked about uh, uh, in a previous podcast where the Cardinals front office officials had uh, created this red bird uh, system, and then Houston went ahead and created a ground control system. They tried to, and they broke into that. So the FBI has been able to trace back the uh, the intrusion back to a computer, I think in Jupiter, Florida, but four or five different people from the organization had access to this computer. So they're having difficulty figuring out which of these four or five people, any of them, all of them, some of them, were the ones who actually did the intrusion. So if it goes to trial like that, there's not probable cause for any one of them, huh? Unless they, unless you treat it as a criminal conspiracy and they're all responsible. Right. I'm, I'm trying to imagine the Law & Order episode of this where they put them all in the different rooms and... and uh, and uh, the the various characters kind of come at them in different ways to try to get them to fess up to this. Yeah, I think they ought to stick them in a batter's box and have somebody throw a hundred mile fastball at them. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I say this with great delight as a Nationals and a Cubs fan. So seeing the Cardinals suffer in any way, um, they don't ever suffer on the field. So seeing them suffer off the field is the next best thing. Um, you know, this is a although a, a sort of a, a very interesting context because the podcast and ESPN don't often cover the same. Stories. Um, it's a it's a problem with all cybercrime investigations in which uh, law enforcement has to put fingers at the keyboard. And you know, typically, this is an extreme example because you've got four or five people who are um, equally capable of having engaged in the intrusion, assuming it was only one, because it may have been a, a conspiracy. Um, all with access to the same computer. But even if it's one person with access to the computer, you typically have to look at other 
signs of activity on the computer at the time of the attacks. Um, you know, who was logged onto their Facebook page, who was sending uh, Gmail, who was surfing the web uh, in ways that are per- perhaps indicative of someone's identity. But it's kind of an age-old problem. One of the things I think is very interesting about it, though, is that the attack was only possible because the uh, general manager of the Astros and his advisor, whose accounts were used, uh, were, were hacked into, and whose credentials were used to access the ground control system, used the same password at the Astros that they'd used when they worked for the Cardinals. And so all these guys had to do was go into the network records of the Cardinals network, figure out what their password was, and then they automatically knew what password to use when they did the hack. Well, there's a lesson for all of us in that, huh? There is. So, yes, yeah, so it's the basic kind of change your passwords, multi-factor authentication, basic hygiene. Although in the category of never let someone else's misfortune go to waste, uh, there was a nice uh, puff piece in the Denver Post today about how the Denver Broncos are very much in front of this uh, this issue uh, and taking cybersecurity Wait, the very Broncos pay, play, play baseball, too? They don't, but perhaps they uh, yeah. perhaps they'll be moved to. to do no, they're, they're worried that the Patriots are going to hack into their system sometime next year <laughs> <laughs> and deplete all their balls in advance. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Well, um, uh, I was going to ask if the, this meant trouble for Hope Solo, but uh, uh, I've been persuaded not to. Um, it could. You never know. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, everything does apparently. Uh, all right. Um, and back to uh, this week in NSA. Uh, uh, interesting story. Uh, not so much for what's in it, but for uh, uh, who leaked it, uh, um, the release of a bunch of documents that purport to be reports on surveillance by the NSA of uh, various French leaders going back uh, uh, five or ten years. Uh, um, a, and they showed up on WikiLeaks, which claims to have more, uh, and uh, um, and WikiLeaks having watched uh, uh, Snowden's success is going to dribble them out, it looks like. Uh, uh, but I thought um, two things were interesting about it. One, um, the... Uh, uh, the president has promised not to listen to the uh, conversations of the uh, uh, head of the French government, uh, even though if these uh, reports are true, the last head of the French government spent some part of his time talking to Confederates about how to uh, screw the U.S. in Palestinian US, uh, Israeli uh, uh, talks and to take action independent of the the government of the United States, uh, which you'd kind of want to know about if you were an intelligence agency. Um, and uh, the other question is, who done it? Where did these come from? Uh, uh, WikiLeaks is not saying they came from Snowden. Um, so uh, we may face another leaker, or frankly, this could just as easily be a Russian intelligence operation designed to uh, 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 sow dissension between the U.S. and France, which ain't, ain't that hard. So, any thoughts? Is anybody really surprised that the NSA spies on foreign governments? I mean, this is where I don't understand the shock and the outrage here. What do we think people spend their days at Fort Meade doing? Yeah, Rob, this, I, I, I completely agree. And this, I, I will say, this story got surprisingly little attention. AP did a study, a story on it. Uh, uh, and, uh, the French reaction to that was sort of similar to some of the uh, reactions we saw inside the U.S. intelligence agency to the OPM hack, which was, oh, 
we screwed up. Uh, if the Americans can get this, we better do something about our security. Yeah. Um, so uh, it may turn out that this is just uh, uh, a one-day wonder, but uh, uh, WikiLeaks will probably have more, and it will be interesting to see where this comes from. I think actually kind of generally, the Snowden documents, because they were so um, uh, well um, uh, grounded and in, in, in almost certainly accurate uh, depictions of documents that are in the files, Snowden, uh, the Snowden's document have, has kind of created an atmosphere in which you can say anything. Say, I have a document here from the National Security Agency, and it gets treated as, oh, well, it must be true. Uh, but, you know, frankly, WikiLeaks doesn't... Uh, infuse me with enormous confidence in the accuracy of what they are uh, uh, purveying and they don't even make a representation as to where it came from or uh, why we should believe it. All right. Um, Next story, um, speaking of WikiLeaks, um, Jake Applebaum is probably the least attractive of the Snowdenista uh, jur- quasi-journalists, uh, the one who has most um, attacked the United States and seems most determined to cause harm to the U.S. and the National Security Agency uh, at any cost. Uh, uh, turns out that uh, he was under investigation in the WikiLeaks uh, uh, investigation and the um, uh Government subpoenaed his uh, uh, Gmail records, uh, also probably his uh, uh, Twitter records, uh, and uh, Google spent years litigating with the Justice Department trying to get permission to tell him that he was being investigated. Uh, and finally, the uh, government agreed to release uh, a whole trove of documents, uh, um, litigation memos, uh, judicial decisions, uh, demonstrating that uh, Google fought very hard uh, to uh, uh, be able to say that uh, they were receipt- they were in receipt of these uh, subpoenas. Uh, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to look at that, Rob. Uh, I thought the most interesting thing, and I know Jason can't comment on this, so the rest of us will, um, is that uh, the uh, the government, the Justice Department, at one point referred to some of the reactions to Twitter's disclosure that, that it was doing, in it, that the, it was faced with an investigation uh, of WikiLeaks, uh, uh, in which many people called on. Google and Facebook and others to disclose whether they had an investigation. Uh, the government referred to that as intimidation of witnesses, um, uh, the witnesses being Google and Facebook. Uh, uh, and it really did raise the question whether uh, you could be prosecuted for obstruction of justice for, ta- for taking a very determined uh, uh, approach to trying to get uh, uh, intermediaries to engage in more transparency. So I don't know, Alan, uh, whether this came up uh, while you were in government, uh, uh, but the idea that there was, this was witness intimidation kind of is going to run contrary to most people's assumptions about the First Amendment and the like. Well, I think, uh, uh, DHS in its, in, especially in its, in its public private role tried to stay as far away from this kind of thing, uh, as possible. So, um, so I defer to, uh, uh to the others in the room. 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, everybody was in government when this happened. But Rob, do you want to uh, venture a view on this? I certainly do not. I'm, I'm going to take the fifth <laughs> and say I'm the only non-lawyer in the room. So well, so I, I should say that uh, one of the intimidation tactics that they pointed to was a memo sent to one of the uh, Justice Department staff uh, uh, attorneys uh, um, that you know I I think used uh, uh, the word fucking and and then said something like. Uh, no, we do not forget, we do not forgive, expect us, um, uh, without any indication that that is the motto or was the motto of Anonymous back when people actually you know, worried about Anonymous. Uh, uh, so, yes, you, you, you run the risk that uh, uh, you have to expect them if you say anything rude about them uh, um, uh, or anything about this case. So let's move on. Uh, I, there was a cyber attack on... Polish flight networks, Alan. Um, What lessons should we draw from that? How serious was that? Well, so this was a a DDoS attack on the flight planning computers uh, for LOT, uh, the Polish national airline. And so you you had about 10 flights canceled, 15 others grounded for several hours. No comments yet about who did it and why. Uh, but it's just another reminder of, uh, for those who are looking for it, of the, the, the insecurities and concerns about the commercial aviation sector mm-hmm. and cybersecurity. Uh, and so you have the FAA standing up a new initiative, uh, around cybersecurity for aircraft, which could either really get to the root of the issue or could just delay the consideration of timely necessary steps for, uh, for a long, long time. Rob, you've uh, worried about uh, infrastructure attacks for a while. Do you think this is a sign of that, or is it just another uh, attack on a Windows network? So I'm actually optimistic for what this could do for cybersecurity. When the airlines start to take this seriously and start to take it seriously as a threat both to the bottom lines and to keeping planes in the sky, that's when we we will start to figure out how actually to do cybersecurity. If they can do for cybersecurity, what they've done for safety in terms of getting yeah. it so we never lose lives, that would be pretty good. Although my memory from, from working with the airlines when I was at DHS, which is now a long time ago, um, they had some of the crappiest IT networks on the planet. Uh, I never understood that. Uh, uh, but when we asked them to do something about sharing information from their reservation system with us or making changes, they, they said, oh, well, you know, nobody here you know, knows basic anymore or something. It, uh, it was uh, remarkable how old and um, inflexible their systems were. So that doesn't leave you feeling good about their cybersecurity measures in general. Yeah, I think you've got to look at the the airframe manufacturers, not necessarily the airlines as being those in the aviation industry who will push it, right? Boeing, Airbus, Bombardier, the smaller players uh, as well are stepping into the space. They're the ones that I think are going to really address this issue. The airlines, they're under significant profit pressure. They've got very old IT systems outside their critical systems. So I think think really looking to keeping the planes up and to keeping those threats like – for the onboard Wi-Fi or the in-flight entertainment from causing problems for airplane functioning, I think they're in pretty good shape. But again, this shows that it, you know, it, it's those are concerns. There's other concerns, and of course, uh, Stuart was saying that the back end 
of these uh, these airline integrations is often you know a place where you have a lot of stumbling. I had an inane conversation last week, first with American Airlines and then with U.S. Airways about uh, undoing a, a ticketing change that that one of them had done without without letting me know. And at some point, I had to stop and just say, as they were saying, well, Ameri- you need to talk to American about this, and you have to talk about U.S. Airways about this, to just stop and say, you do realize you're the same company now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, we, I, I'm, I'm going to l- save the OPM stuff for the interview, uh, uh, but I... I can't help noticing the uh, that Google has announced that it is going to do a kind of variant of the right to be forgotten for revenge porn. Um, and uh, uh, at first, how can you be against taking down revenge porn? Uh, uh, but the more I thought about it, the the more weird this became. Because you know what what is revenge porn how do you how do you establish to google's satisfaction that what you're asking them to take down is revenge porn uh, i'm i'm sure that there's no python script that can make that determination which means it's not in google's sweet spot um a, a, but what's your understanding about what exactly they're taking down well, you know, I, I have to think that what they're taking down are images that someone has certified to them are images that were that were not taken for that purpose and are now being used for some purpose, whether it be at blackmail or uh, or even just pure revenge after a, a relationship has ended. And, and I have to say, as a as a parent, I'm kind of on Google's side here that uh, that this is the right thing to do and the bar should be relatively low. Yeah, okay, I I I, I see that, but really, how do you how do you prove it? I, I, you send them a picture of yourself to prove that it's really you in the photo. I, I you know, unless the unless the the person who did it, and really, we're talking about guys, aren't we? So unless the guy who did it uh, uh, is um, uh, says, when he posts the picture, this is my old girlfriend, ha, 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 you know, guess she regrets breaking up with me. I, it, it's awfully hard to, to uh, make a determination this is revenge porn uh, and needs to come down, isn't it? Well, if it's posted on a site like revengeporn.com, it's pretty obvious. So you have that first filter. Wow, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with that site. Uh, uh, yes, can so you tell me more? Insider covers this extensively, and that's my main news source. Uh, so yeah, so that that is one of the first places they can look. The second thing that they can do, which is an evolving technology that they and other companies are using, is identify that which is pornographic. Yes. Through an algorithm. So they're able to do that. They're saying, yes, this is pornographic. Okay. So you, think, you think they actually are going to restrict this to things that are pornographic? I would assume so, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that it's uh, nude photos. But, well, but this introduces a very interesting uh, what point. Is porn? Well, which is that, you know, Justice Potter, Potter Stewart, right, has now been overtaken by an algorithm. Yeah, right? <laughs> the algorithm right? knows it when it sees it. Exactly. <laughs> the algorithm knows it when it right. computes it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, and actually, there, there are. There are programs that will tell you how much skin tone is in the photo, uh, which is often a good clue. But I don't think I would necessarily want to uh, rely just on that. Yeah, I think that inevitably and uh, and unfortunately for the for the folks working in the in the in the basements of these facilities, looking at this, some human beings going to have to uh, take a look at these images and render a decision. Yeah, and I, you know, it, it, does it matter whether there was consent? Almost certainly there was consent when the photo was taken or the video was taken, right? 
Well, I think, you know, Rob makes the good point that if, if you're talking about, um, revengeporn.com or, you know, a photo that is, that actually is labeled in the way that you have said, which a business insider has reported that the, that many are, that you have a much, um, that you have a much, uh, clearer case. But you will have gray areas where, it, where it becomes a, uh, a, uh, a debate among those depicted as to, uh, as to whether this is, uh, revenge porn or just the good old fashioned kind, so. Yeah. So I, I, I famously asked that um, Google be required to take down a photo of me when I weighed about 10 pounds more because it was not reflective of current reality and therefore under the right to be forgotten. I had a, I had a claim. Maybe I could, I could argue that it's revenge porn, that they, they posted it to make me look bad uh, and asked them to take it down on that ground. I guess you could ask them to run it through their their skin tone algorithms and all of that and see what they say. Yeah, that's right. Well, there, there, there's not that much skin. I have to. I, I can assure you. Uh, okay. That's for all of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to take me the rest of the day to get that image out of my. Head. <laughs> hey, this is this is the podcast that pioneered Max Mosley as a as a meme. Right. Uh, I think uh, uh, you you've already got that in your head somewhere. Uh, all right, and I see that Toshiba has announced they're doing quantum cryptography, which I think is really cool. This is where you use the spooky action at a distance uh, um, it, uh, uh, of two photons in which they're entangled, and what happens to them here also happens to them six miles away at the same time, and that w- you can use that as a way of guaranteeing that the um, uh, the message is read only by the, the person who... Uh, it is sent to. Uh, um, this is. Uh, I never thought we'd get to real quantum cryptography, but uh, Toshiba says they've they've got it and they're going to put it into uh, uh, into the market. And uh, that's it for uh, uh, the news roundup. Why don't we move on to um, OPM uh, and uh, uh, the interview, uh, um, uh, uh, Rob. Uh, uh, the OPM story is is really the gift that keeps on giving. There's lots of little things. It's taken on sort of mini Watergate uh, um, uh, aspects in the sense that stories now, secondary and tertiary stories, just are spinning out of this uh, because the the press can't get enough of OPM. So uh, things that would be ignored in other contexts uh, become, you know, page one stories. Uh, um, it, but the broadest, in the broadest aspect, uh, it's still what uh, what we thought it was. Uh, uh, very likely Chinese hackers broke into the OPM uh, 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 network and probably stole everything, uh, including uh, very sensitive background investigation and maybe even adjudicative files. Uh, uh, adjudicative files are where the government thinks it might have to take away your uh, 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 your clearance, and they ask you to explain your sex life or your uh, uh, financial life uh, in considerable and embarrassing detail. Um, and if those are stolen, it's kind of hard to imagine what's left of uh, uh, privacy of federal workers. Yeah, I mean, this has been a story that will not go away and has led to 24-hour-a-day speculation in the media about what, in fact, was stolen. What's interesting here is the government has come out thus far and said, here's what was stolen, right? They've said 4.5 million records are gone of federal employees only, information like date of birth, social security number, last address. That's what government is saying was taken. They're saying no information yet was taken 
on contractors or was taken on family members. Right. So That's everything what they beyond say. that is what they say. Right. But nobody is comfortable with that because they can't really say that they know for sure it wasn't taken, right? Right. And so I think in all likelihood, if the investigation leads to where the speculation is right now that up to 18 million records were taken to include contractors, to include the investigative files, to include family members, the government will disclose that when they reach that conclusion. So, so we probably only have to stay tuned. Unfortunately, it will probably happen in July or August when nobody's paying attention. That, that it could, could, yeah, maybe the uh, Friday before the Fourth of July weekend uh, would be a good time. Uh, although I, I, I think uh, Jim Comey from the FBI said he thought it could be 18 million which it certainly could be, uh, and uh, uh, there was a dramatic moment in the hearing where the head of OPM is saying, we, we stick with the four and a half uh, a million uh, uh, number. Uh, I, I don't know where this 18 million comes from, and an FBI guy stands up and says, I wasn't supposed to testify, but it comes from your own damn report, uh, and starts waving uh, uh, a preliminary OPM report around. So uh, it's clearly creating tension inside the government. Most certainly. I mean, the real questions right now is who's responsible in government for this problem, right? The head of OPM sort of took the approach of it's not my fault, it's everybody's fault, and the whole government needs to come around and create a solution. That's clearly not the case. There clearly are lines of responsibility. They're just really, really fuzzy right now. So I I, I agree that, um, that no one, I'm sure she feels as though, Everybody else was part of the decisions that uh, she didn't get budget, she didn't get approval, she uh, wasn't told about risks, uh, uh, and that other people should share the responsibility. But it is kind of surprising that the White House is standing behind uh, her so um, firmly. Well, I mean, the question is, what did you want the director of OPM to do? Get on the line and knock down individual packets? Is that is that what a director of an agency is responsible for doing? You know, I would argue that, well, Congress is asking for her resignation. They also have to look inwardly and say, hey, did we fund this organization appropriately? Do they have the kind of IT budget they need? Are they working with modern systems that can easily be defended? Got to answer those questions before you get to the do, question do, do of... Do you think so? I... I, 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 I understand that but at the same time you know government is never fair politics is never entirely fair uh and at some level uh uh this was a disaster she was in charge of the disaster she could have screamed louder that's for sure uh she could have said uh we will have failures if you don't give me the money i'm willing to bet she didn't do that uh, uh maybe it would be good for cybersecurity and as fair as washington ever gets if she is canned so I, that sounds like your opinion. I don't think I'm going to agree with it here. I mean, I certainly think that we can look to the private sector and say, yeah, in the case of Target, having some effects on leadership of an organization got everybody jumping. That does seem to be the case. But more than that, and you were at the you were at the White House when um, when some of these initial things happened after USIS, after Keypoint, um, you know when. When clearly this organization is on notice about things that it needs to do, it's being told by DHS and others about things it needs to do. Um, and we're still seeing some of that kind of every federal agency is sovereign. I'll make my decisions as to, as to when I, when I'm going to do what. Don't you think it becomes more that, more of a, more than a public relations thing, but it, it actually becomes an accountability for your decisions thing? 
So, I mean, that's an interesting point, right? One of the things that everybody who's worked in the federal government knows is that it doesn't exactly hum along according to the edicts coming out of the White House, right? And so this is a case where a lot of policy has been put out over, let's say, the de- last decade in the case of something like PIV card implementation, two-factor authentication for federal uh, email accounts and logical access control. That policy was put out in 2003 by the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. We still and haven't yet, gotten there. We're, we're, we're still trying to get the uh, systems administrators to, to use, use single-factor yeah. authentication from China or Argentina, if, if the news <laughs> reports are to be believed. So I think it's clearly a case where, yeah, we don't have the kind of systems in the private sector where people are held accountable at every level. But, you know, the way those things get resolved is people realize we have uh, under-optimized for a particular requirement, and they centralize it in some fashion. Uh, um, and essentially, that would mean telling OPM and HHS and DOJ, you are no longer sovereign in terms of your IT budget and your security practices, uh, which we haven't quite done, have we? I mean, I would take it a step further, right? We have all these individual agencies running like individual corporations. We pretend that the .gov is something manageable. It's really not, right? And so the comparison everybody makes is to .mil. Well, DOD has its own level two internet service provider, right? They control the network. They can, in fact, shut off connectivity if they have a unit or an organization that's not meeting standards. Nobody in the federal government has that kind of authority or power. These are individual operating units. So should should DHS, I mean, DHS uh, backed up by OMB, I guess, is the to the extent that there's a, a, a cybersecurity enforcer for .gov, that's it. Uh, should there be more authority uh, for uh, DHS and OMB uh, to to tell agencies that have other priorities? I'm sorry, cybersecurity is your top priority? Yeah, absolutely. And I I would go further than that. I would say they need to have levers at a couple steps. One, being able to go after the bonuses and the pay of leaders within these organizations. If they don't need milestones, no bonuses this year. That never happens. The second thing would, would be I'd go to the Internet connectivity, right? The inspector general of OPM said you should shut down these systems. Who actually had the authority to order the shutdown of those systems? I can't answer that question. I've talked to people in federal government. They can't answer that question. So it's a little bit up in the air if you don't even know who who has the final say-so on cybersecurity. That's that's scary. And and there's an enormous opportunity here for Congress uh, either to uh, exercise the their moral suasion or just to write laws that uh, change those rules. Yeah, I mean, I think getting the federal house in order is something that Congress has shown zero interest in. Yep. It's obviously the first thing that the private sector says when anybody from the federal government wants to dictate cybersecurity standards. Look at what happened to you. But nobody is stepping up to the plate within Congress to say, hey, here's what our cybersecurity organization needs to look like for the federal government. So let's let's ask the question, now that we know that uh, highly likely the Chinese are very interested in stealing information about Americans and building a database, where are they going to go next and what should we uh, uh, be worried about uh, uh, protecting that we are not currently protecting just the way OPM was not protecting these files? Thoughts? The speculation here, right, the Chinese and other intelligence agencies have sort of combed over everything in the unclassified space, right? They've taken stuff out of 
multiple federal agencies, multiple federal contractors. They take in information from intellectual property, from private companies. And so the, the thinking is the reason they would want this kind of database is so they could start going after more classified information that they may not be able to get through spear phishing campaigns and online activity. Do we, do we think they've actually uh, rifled the IRS files? Do you think that? Um, it's hard to believe it isn't a high priority, but uh, no one is saying, oh, my God, look at the lesson we learned from OPM. What are we going to do to make sure the IRS spends its increasingly limited funds on protecting the security of those files? So what I come back to in the questions of the IRS is really why would that be an intelligence target that the Chinese government would want to go after? If they've got all this other information, that's not the information that they want, right? That might be a pathway to get the information they want. But is more PII and federal employees or ordinary Americans going to give them some kind of decision advantage? Hard to know what you're doing with this, but if you're gathering a, a database of every American so that you can identify the CIA agents, yeah, uh, this um, uh, this is the sort of information that allows you to say, well, we now know everybody in the country, and if you're not in this file, you probably didn't exist five years ago, and you're probably a made-up identity for starters. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm willing to bet that um, uh, you you could learn a lot about uh, who would be a good target uh, by looking at the uh, uh, income and obligations of some of the people on that uh, who filed uh, tax returns. So you know, this is where I sort of go to the the question of, is the CIA really this bad at their jobs, right? If it's in fact true that you could do that sort of exclusion analysis and figure out who were CIA operatives or who were undercover names, yeah, that's the equivalent of not having digital pocket litter, of not having a real backstory. And so the CIA and every intelligence agency in the world is trying to figure out how they work in a digital age where you not only have databases like this, you have facial recognition software, you have cameras everywhere, you have the Internet of Things. So it may be becoming much, much harder to do human intelligence, right. but at the same time, so, so, but, but okay, it's harder. So, but that, doesn't that mean that we should do everything we can to uh, uh, prevent it from getting even harder by protecting these databases? I, I have to say, I don't think that uh, um, you know the the CIA have the same set of uh, uh, dichotomies uh, built into its uh, uh, DNA that NSA had. There's Inside the U.S., where we abide by every law, and outside the United States, where we break people's laws. Uh, uh, but now, abiding by U.S. law, filing your taxes, uh, that's no longer cost-free. Uh, there's potentially very serious consequences for that, and I'm willing to bet that the uh, CIA has not changed its policy on whether you have to file for taxes. Uh, uh, of course you do. Uh, and uh, I'm willing to bet that the IRS has never been asked to take special precautions with respect to those files. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you sp- uh, speculate on CIA tradecraft. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I may have to go back into government one day. Well, I, I, I worked at NSA, so uh, we, uh, as the S- uh, CIA always told us, had no good tradecraft. Uh, well, but let me ask you then. I mean, that the 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 whole line of 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 trying to figure out 
you know, prove the negative in terms of, of who didn't exist is an interesting, is an interesting line, but it's not the only thing that can be done with this vast amount of information. And having gone through the, the, the process of putting, uh, of responding to the OPM letter this weekend and, and putting my information in, I, I, I have a feeling that the, the things that are now being watched for are not really the things that, that we have to look out. Oh no, it's kind for. of sad, wasn't it? I got the, I got my letter. Did you get yours letter, Rob, too? I did. I thought it was a spear fishing campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it, it was completely, uh, orthogonal to the problem that we think we have. Right. So what do you think are going to be the, the, the kind of the, the indicators, the, the first signs that we're going to see of this information being used? So, I mean, what the FBI has, has, I guess, leaked on this, according to the press, right, is that they haven't yet seen any of the stolen information being sold on the dark web. So they're saying it's not being traded amongst carters. It's not being used by cyber criminals. And then they speculated and said, but now that we've come out and said that, the Chinese will probably sell some of the data Right. To throw off the trail. So well, thanks, for the, yes. many thanks, thanks for that. Great, right? So <laughs> yeah, I, I think that we probably won't see the effects of this in the public. I think what we we may see, if in fact it was the Chinese who stole it, and it was in fact for the purpose of uncovering human intelligence, is the kind of stuff that is just going to happen in the shadows. And six months from now, we're going to have no idea what the effect is, but people inside government will still be grappling with that. So here's my theory, is that they may not know exactly what they're going to do with it, but they have found it immensely valuable in controlling their own people to have really good files on them all. Because I'm sure they do, because uh, you know they're authoritarian government and they have a great uh, intelligence capability. Of course, they would do this. Uh, so they figure, well, if it works on our people, it'll work on the Americans too. So let's build a similar database, and it may be no more thoughtful than that. Uh, uh, that well, this is what we do. Uh, so here's a here's a question um, for the two of you: What the hell is the Interior Department doing managing all this data? I mean, really, if, if, if we're worried about security, shouldn't we put it someplace uh, a little more secure than the Interior Department? So, I mean, it's, it's a shared services history, right? This is government becoming more, more efficient. This is how probably all of us were paid by the Department of Agriculture, even if we worked at the Department of Homeland Security. And so that's where it comes from. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with Interior providing those shared services. What I have a problem with is the level of security they were providing for those services. And so there's some hope, it's probably false hope, that as we move to a cloud model, governed by FedRAMP, that we may in fact get more security out of centralizing data than we do out of having individual agencies manage their own data. Right, and I think that's the point. I mean, both Rob and I were part of exercises where where we wrote into into policy or strategy documents that federal government cybersecurity should be managed as an enterprise, Uh, but I think we actually have to get there and quickly. Um, and if we can do that, as Rob said, then it doesn't matter if it's the Department of the Interior that has the extra space or the Department of this or the Department of that. Um, but if we can't, it's, it's going to matter a lot. So I'm going to, I, I, I think it would make sense just to move that shared service to DHS and let them provide the security at the same time. I, I, that's, then you at least don't have to worry that people are going to say, you're not the boss of me. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm getting the security that the Interior Department thinks I deserve. Uh, uh, at a minimum, if, if you're going to make it easier to impose security requirements, one way to do it is to move the shared services. Right, but we, um, we've experimented over time with 
taking the thing that we think that we care about the most at this moment and bundling it into some some cabinet department existing or new, um, and we get bitten a couple of ways by that. Number one, it's really hard for that organization to manage all of that. And then number two, something the next thing comes and bites us was the thing we weren't thinking about. Well, yeah, that's that's true enough. But I'm not sure that we have to worry that the biggest uh, cybersecurity threat we face is endangered species. Uh, um, so let's talk about the folks we thought did it. Uh, everybody believes that uh, uh, it was the Chinese, although there's some ambiguity and some reluctance to do the attribution. Uh, let me start with that. Why do you think there is such reluctance to do the attribution, Rob? Well, in part, we've taken a really firm stance against what China's been doing in cyberspace over the last decade, right? They've been stealing intellectual property from the United States, uh, from U.S. companies, and giving it to Chinese companies. That's what we don't want them to do. Spying on federal agencies, stealing information on federal employees kind of falls into an international norm of acceptable espionage. And so we may not want to hammer them on this because we may say, hey, yeah, keep keep hitting us here. Keep up the good work. Stay away from Google. Stay away from Facebook. Oh, that is so lame. That is pitiful. That you know, to, to say... We- we, why don't you keep attacking OPM and steal all our stuff, uh, and maybe that'll keep you busy and you won't steal from 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 uh, uh, other governments? Are, I, I, I saw your stuff about this. You'd said, well, you know, and and you're not uh, alone. Mike Hayden has said this. Jim Clapper has said it. Well, it's shame on us, not shame on them. I think that really is. The problem with that is the problem with this whole notion that there are norms in cyberspace and that we should not get upset if people do to us what we do to them. Uh, we'd get very upset if people started shooting at us, even though we shoot at them. You know, if people shoot at us, we we try to kill them. Uh, and uh, we don't say, oh, well, it's a norm. They shoot at us. We shoot at them. Uh, we say, no, if he's shooting at us, we're going to try to kill him. Uh, and shouldn't we... We, we can't say you're violating international law, but we certainly should say we, by God, are going to find a way to have consequences for this. So I, mean, I think your analogy is terrible, right? Because nobody's getting <laughs> shot at here, right? There, there is no consequence at this level. This exists below the level of warfare, and we're in a situation well, below the in level which... of warfare. But they could be stealing stuff that will endanger the national security of the United States and will endanger American lives when they steal F-35s or the uh, plans, or they steal uh, uh, our. Uh, uh, air, aircraft carrier plans so that they can attack them. Uh, they're doing things that will cost lives if they're successful. And we absolutely need to stop them. The question is, right, after Manning, after Snowden, after the revelation you did at the top of the hour that suggests that the United States spied on France's leadership, right, what is it that we think we should do that we think foreign governments should not do. Where are the lines? And that's what the North is That's the wrong question. The question is not, you know, the question is not what should we, uh, what are the rules and we'll abide by the rules and they will. The rules here are if you go to a country and you steal their secrets and you get caught there, you, you get shot. Uh, or traded if you're lucky. Uh, uh, and, uh, if you get away with it, you get away with it. Uh, but, uh, uh, the, uh, people who've been spied upon take action to make you wish you hadn't gotten caught. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, we need to do that even even where it's not a question of norms. But we're, well, but that's the thing is we're kind of mixing, uh, you know, retribution for intelligence action with norms. Yeah. And to, to really quote, I think Mike Hayden said, 
if it was us, we would have grabbed it in a heartbeat. Of course we would have. And I think it was Clapper who said, I have to salute them for doing this. Yeah, so, I think this, uh, this is nuts. This is, this is, <laughs> this is what's wrong with this administration's infatuation with norms. That we'll write some norms and then we'll stick to them. And if, 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 if this is just spying, we'll just say, oh yeah, it's just spying. Well, but I think we have to untangle it, which is number one, what is the U.S. government going to do about this incident? If it turns out that the Chinese did it and they did it for intelligence gathering purposes. The other piece is, should we have international peacetime norms and what in the world do those mean? Right. I, I, I think I, I, you can certainly separate those. I'm a norm skeptic, as you know. Uh, but yeah, the, the idea that we will just shrug, which is what's happening. You know, the head of our intelligence community shrugs over this. That's not the right answer. The, the right answer is we need to show the Chinese that there is a cost to this too. And if, if, if the only cost is we decide we don't care getting caught stealing their secrets, well, fine. Uh, or maybe it's we steal their secrets about who they're paying off and being paid off by and publish it uh, uh, at WikiLeaks. Uh, there's, there are consequences that we can bring to bear on this that stay within the idea that yes spying is is spying and that we can we can do it uh, uh, but uh, um, nonetheless it should be a wake-up call for Americans that we are very substantially losing national security because of the successful spying of the Chinese and we have to react to it uh, not just sit around and say more power to them I mean I think I can largely agree with that but the question is right? I know you don't like norms, but which norms do we want to apply to us, right? We got through the Snowden scandal without a single ambassador being PNG'd. We got through without anybody saying this was an act of war. Nobody rolled their Navy towards the Atlantic or Pacific coast of the United States. And so after that, all gets out on the table, hey, here's what we've been up to. Sorry, guys, right? It's very hard for us to come back and say, ah, this crossed some sort of line. You can't do that. Now, I also agree with you. There is a place where we've got to figure out how we put limits because we don't have those human intelligence limits of lives being put at risk. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I think that the problem is in thinking that, that there's an invocation of principles that transcend American self-interest uh, uh, to be carried out here. This is an attack on America's self-interest on a fundamental level, and our reaction should be very bad because we're Americans, and our self-interest as a nation matters to the way the world is organized, and uh, if we don't respond to this, uh, the, the world will be organized by somebody else in a much less congenial way. And so a last question for you. Should that response be necessarily public and overt, or should it be taking place quietly? It should quietly? not be public and overt. I, I do agree with you on that, uh, with the implicit uh, thrust of the question. Uh, but I have zero confidence that it, that it will be aggressive and determined when the head of the intelligence community says, oh, yeah, oh, it sucks to be us. Uh, that's just that that's that's not impressive. Well, and the other thing that's important for the norms discussion about that is that it's somewhat artificial to to declare norms by fiat. Norms are norms because they're they're the developed ac actions of people over time. So it's more what we do right now rather than what we say right now that's going to set norms over time. Yeah. The idea, I mean, the idea that, that to use a law of the sea analogy, the idea that you could have gotten. All of the nation, all the seafaring nations of the world at the dawn of, of seagoing travel and sat them down at a big table and said, okay, what are the norms going to be? 
is is almost ridiculous. But yeah, it might well, be I, nicer than 400 years of naval warfare to sort, sort that out. I mean, it is worth a try to see if we can come up with norms to cover the you cyber really age. So? Really, I mean, I, the, the norms emerge from a sense that, yes, this is bad for me as well as for him. Or if I do X, he will do Y, and I will dislike Y more than I will enjoy X. So I won't do X. Uh, I, and, and, you know, it's, it's very brutally reciprocal. It's not, uh, it's, it's not the, the product of law professors thinking hard, uh, and carefully about these, these issues. Uh, uh, and you don't know what, uh, reciprocity actually holds until you experience it a little. I think that's true. I mean, I think if there's any norm that, that China violated here, it was the norm against getting caught, right? They didn't seem to really care about getting caught. That's because there's no cost to being caught. That's the problem. That's exactly right. I think the U.S. and the Russians to a significant degree and, and, you know, the Israelis and the, and the Brits all assumed that it was a bad idea to get caught. Uh, and they worked very hard not to get caught. And one of the troubling things that the Chinese have introduced into this is they've demonstrated to everybody that there's really no real great harm in being caught. Uh, and that means your people are going to do much more of it than they did before. And everybody else is piling in from uh, Iran to North Korea. But I mean, the other side of it is the fact that they got caught makes the information less valuable. Right. Because we know we can take steps in response. Right. If we had never found out about this five years from now, we might be like, what happened to our human intelligence network in China? What do they know? Who's the mole? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe. Although it may be. We may want to just convince them that they really got to get better at what they do. You know, they need to stop sucking (laughs) because if OPM and DHS Einstein one and two can catch them, they're really not that good. Yeah, well, that it, it's 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 true. What does this say about Einstein and DHS? Uh, um, some people are criticizing Einstein for not catching this, and the response is, "Well, uh, we've never seen this before. It was effectively a zero day, uh, so we, Einstein wasn't set up to catch it." Uh, uh, I can't tell. Maybe that uh, the uh, DHS will end up with more funding and an accelerated rollout. Uh, for Einstein 3, right? Well, it sounds like they'll end up with more funding. I, I do hope it's matched with an accelerated rollout for uh, even putting aside Einstein 3. I think the point that you made, which is that that this was beyond the design capability of the system, points to a bigger problem, which is that, and again, talking about norms, the U.S. government's got to get to the same place uh, where where most businesses are in terms of the norms of what you're doing uh, for your own cybersecurity. So hopefully this will accelerate not just the deployment of Einstein as it's currently envisioned, but the expansion of Einstein and continuous diagnostics and, and mitigation and the other elements of this kind of managing the, the cybersecurity of the federal enterprise to get it at least up to where the better companies so are, if I, not past. I, I agree with you, and and even uh, you know, uh, Einstein three is just an intrusion prevention system, which is you know, uh, two thousand four technology maybe, uh, and. Since then, we've had um, continuous di- diagnostics and monitoring, which is what mitigation used to be uh, before uh, political correctness required DHS to change the name. Um, and, and even that is not exactly state-of-the-art. State-of-the-art would have uh, detonation chambers for all your attachments uh, and very elaborate uh, uh, incident monitoring for anomalies all over the network. Uh, uh, those things are going to be even more unacceptable 
to other agencies, aren't they? To have DHS doing the monitoring to say, is this tax auditor really supposed to be looking at these files? I mean, no one is going to want DHS to do that, so the resistance to that is going to be enormous, and, and without without that, you know, we're not going to be able to catch people who are in our systems. But as you know, we talk to, to companies all the time that might describe their systems in that way, and, and we tell them, look, you just have to change it. Yeah, well, that would be interesting. Uh, um, so one last thing on norms, and maybe the last thing for the uh, um, uh, for the show, um, I remember on Cyber War, uh, reading it was a fine book, uh, but it argued for norms uh, in part. It said some basic norms like we won't attack the financial systems of, of, of other countries. Uh, and the U.S. has more or less bought into the idea that that should be a norm. Uh, but the principal fruits of that have been um, North Korean and Iranian attacks on, whoa, what do you know, financial systems. Uh, I, I wonder if uh, the very process of articulating norms is just telling the people who hate us the most where we're most afraid they'll attack us. And uh, we have no way to enforce these norms, so they're going to attack us there. So I, mean, I think in the case of the financial system, what, when we looked at the issue writing cyber war, we said, well, do we actually need to go in and take over an account in this way, or do we actually have the capability to do that through various legal regimes, right? We're able to freeze bank accounts all over the world because all the money runs through the United States. So we actually don't need that capability. North Korea and Iran probably do. And so it's a norm that's in our interest to promote. But it's not one we can actually enforce. Uh, and so everybody else looks at that and said, that, well, that that's a an asymmetric U.S. favoring norm, so we're going to ignore it. Yeah, but didn't you say earlier that we want norms like that, ones that favor us versus well, ones that favor other countries? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, it should be a norm, yes. right? I mean, but but is- we can't, we, I, I, my guess is the problem, the main problem with norms is uh, nobody's listening. The only people who enforce those norms are a bunch of JAGs in DOD, uh, uh, and that won't do us any good in, in fighting uh, other people who are uh, disobeying or violating what we think the norms should be. So I think what's interesting about the DDoS attacks allegedly carried out by Iran against the financial institution is that they were DDoS attacks. Yes, they were. These were targeting websites of financial institutions. And allegedly, Iran had much more powerful capability that they deployed against their local neighbors, right, against Razgas and uh, Saudi Aramco. And to our knowledge, they didn't target any U.S. banks with that. So it may be that the norm is, in fact, working, that they said, oh, the U.S. has put out something. We actually don't want to cross that line. I don't think that's a norm. I mean, because we didn't say, oh, you can go ahead and attack our uh, websites, uh, uh, because that's, those actually did interfere with transactions and substantially. Uh, I, what it says is the fear of retaliation is producing caution about the kinds of attacks that people launch, but it's also producing a kind of salami slicing attack that people try say, well, let's see what they do about this one. Oh, we can take another slice based on that reaction. Oh, and another slice too. I mean, you look at what the, the Chinese did to GitHub. I, that was a direct and obvious state-sponsored attack was a, and that was designed to punish them for their speech. Uh, I, and uh, 
that's something they probably wouldn't have done five years ago. I think that's because they think that uh, now we're not going to react, and we didn't. And I, I think that was a big failure on our part, right? We haven't really come out with a norm saying, hey – don't mess with our freedom of speech in the United States. We kind of did that with Sony, and then we sort of dropped the ball right. on GitHub. But I think we almost need, and I can't remember who who coined this phrase, uh, but we need that sort of Monroe Doctrine in cyberspace that says, stay the hell out of our cyberspace, respect our right and our ability to speak freely in our cyberspace. And we don't have that. So we haven't said we're going to defend that. So we'll end on a note of agreement. I completely agree with you on that. Uh, we need to do that. Uh, um, uh, I may be the only one who thinks that logically suggests a cyber attack on the uh, Article 29 Working Party and the right to be forgotten in Europe. But uh, uh, we <laughs> certainly want to uh, uh, prevent these guys from thinking that they can take one American out back at a time and beat the crap out of him for what he said uh, in the United States, which is what is happening now. And uh, we need to find a, a governmental response to those sorts of attacks. So uh, let me just ask, uh, I, you have any uh, upcoming reports, speeches, uh, events you want to uh, uh, promote here? The wonderful thing about being in the think tank sector instead of in the government is that we shut down for the entire summer and there will be no CFR meetings between now and September. Whoa, that's sweet. Well, of course, we, I, I, should, I shouldn't uh, uh, pretend we aren't shutting down. We're shutting down for August. Uh, there will be no podcasts uh, after July 29 or so uh, uh, for, for a month. Uh, but, Rob, thank you. This was spirited and fun and engaging, and uh, I learned a lot. Uh, um, uh, thanks to Jason. Alan, thank you for uh, uh, participating. Uh, as a reminder for all of you uh, in the audience, the CyberLaw Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, uh, CyberLaw Podcast at Steptoe.com or call us at 202-862-5785. Uh, this has been Episode 73 of the Steptoe CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be joined by Catherine Lotrianti, whose uh, uh, retina uh, is now repaired. Uh, she's the Associate Director of the Institute for Law, Science, and Global Security at Georgetown University, and she'll come on and defend norms uh, again. Uh, and then uh, after that, uh, before our August break, uh, Michael, Michael Casey and Paul Vigna of the Wall Street Journal uh, will be on, uh, and then Annie Anton and Peter Swartz. The power couple of cybersecurity from Georgia Institute of Technology will round out uh, uh, just about our uh, month. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us for all of those uh, uh, programs as we once again provide insight into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.